Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. The end of the Supreme Court term this week was filled with fireworks, several blockbuster rulings, and the announcement that Justice Anthony Kennedy would resign. This week, we're devoting the whole show to breaking down the high court action. We'll be joined by senior reporter Van Guerreri to explain a ruling that could be the death knell for public sector unions. Then later in the show, we'll talk all about the immigration travel ban ruling with Hawaii Lieutenant Governor Doug Chin. And stick around to the end of the show to find out just how old you can be before one Texas law firm insists you must retire. As always, I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Is everybody's is everybody's head still attached to their body? I frankly am exhausted. <laughs> I think we all are. Are we gonna make it through this show today? I, th- yeah. I thought about I thought about right. sending an email to the higher ups being like, Do you guys mind if we do like a seventy eight minute show this yeah, week? Yeah, right. I know. There's um, just so much to pack in. So all right, let's get right into some stuff. Let's yeah. talk Kennedy. It's our boy such Tony K. big news. The swing man. Yeah. The combo guard. The yep. well the Eric Maynor on the bench. I mean, I'd like to start out by saying uh, as everyone listening can expect we've had extensive coverage already at law 360 yeah we're going to continue covering you know all of the expected fallouts how it's going to impact different practice areas and cases before the high court yeah and we're even going to talk about it in some more depth on next week's show but we can't avoid talking about it. Yeah, this no. Um, I mean, uh, just a couple. You already referenced that there's been a lot of great stories. Jimmy Hoover in D.C. had a really good one that sort of traced the last basically three decades of Kennedy emerging as as the swing vote between the right. two uh, yeah. partisan wings uh, of the court. That was really good. Jimmy's like probably like a top five like consistent read at Law Three Hundred and Sixty. <laughs> by the way, I'm wow. like, yeah, definitely. Nice little, nice little shout out. Playing playing favorites uh, to, uh, uh-huh. to other people. It features wise news. He's very good too. Anyway, um, that was good. I know Jeff Overly uh, is working on a feature now. It'll probably have run by the time this goes live. That sort of measures. Kennedy's position as swing vote against past justices who have occupied that role, like Senator right. Day O'Connor and some others. There's, I mean, there's, there's there's lots of angles. We keep referring to swing vote, and that's the real top line here, right? I mean, we spend a lot of time at Law 360 um, thinking about rulings before they come down and doing mm-hmm. that prediction mm-hmm. game of how's it going to go, and almost every conversation is, well, what do people think Kennedy might right. do? Well, and but it's interesting though if you, if, I mean, if, at least if you look at this term. He hasn't been much of a swing vote. That's a good point. Uh, you know, he gets a lot of points for some of the some of the social issue rulings that he did over the years. But if you look at the economic stuff, if you look yep. at the regulatory stuff over the last few terms, um, so it's 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 interesting that that legacy that that he has um, and sort of how that'll be digested mm-hmm. over time. Um, it'll also be interesting to see what happens politically in the next in the next six months to a year. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, pretty much immediately, Democrats started saying that they want to push off any consideration until after the midterms. Um, yeah, there's going to be a lot yeah. of fireworks on Capitol Hill. The, uh, well, I also wonder for the... I mean, that's that goes without saying. I don't know if you saw Mitch McConnell today sort of... Um, Drawing like a like like a very bright yeah. line and between. I watched, yeah, the, I watched a lot of the Senate Judiciary for a, a different reason, but a lot there were a lot of reactions well, in there. Yeah, that people were talking about. You know, everyone had to get their point in, and a lot of Democrats went on the record saying like, "Well, we don't think you should vote on someone during an election. They don't really have any power to stop it." But right, yeah, it will be interesting to see. The uh, I'm curious to know. I mean, you made the point that you know maybe in this in his swan song he wasn't quite as much of a swing as he yeah maybe always was. Is now? I mean, if you take if you take into account that Trump will. A point of like a fairly partisan individual. Um, I mean, I guess I guess Roberts now kind of occupies that. He's more seat. of a swing, I guess. Well, I but it won't be, it won't sure. be a true swing. It'll yeah. be someone more to the to the ideological right. But it won't be it won't be a swing in the sense Kennedy was, where where he really did he would he really did side with the with the forth. liberal branch a lot of yeah. the time. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, do we want to talk about some rulings? Yeah, I think um, I said sort of in the intro up top that we're going to talk about uh, the big employment case this week, and we're going to talk about the big um, travel ban ruling. But there was a lot of other big stuff. Yeah, we so like let's we just like run have down. too many yeah. to go through. <laughs> so let's just run down some of our big hits for the week. Yeah. So uh, for all the antitrust nerds out there, there was a big uh, ruling in the Amex case. I can't remember if we talked about it now actually, but it dealt with. Um, policies that American Express had um, in its contracts with merchants, like retailers and sellers, that basically uh, said that retailers couldn't encourage uh, customers to use different credit cards because Amex charges a lot higher fees, called Mm -hmm. swipe fees, every time you use the card. Um, They said that uh, Amex is allowed to do that. Uh, Again, hyper-partisan, 5-4. All the the, the liberal wing of the court saw it basically as as a real affront to common antitrust jurisprudence where it's like you know you're you're literally locking customers and retailers into sort of one sure one one sphere one market a lot of interesting coverage there it's a little weedy but like if you're into antitrust it was by all accounts a pretty huge decision and, and then i think we would be remiss we we you know it got buried this week but i know we talked a lot about the carpenter case which was about uh uh Police needing to seek uh, prosecutors need to, to get search warrants to to get cell phone pesky location. civil liberties case right exactly yeah. and it, you know it was a it was still a big deal but it sort of sort of got buried in in everything else we're going to talk about on today's show yeah patents yeah. too the the Ryan the uh, you get you get the patent damages for overseas sales that's right yep. that Pretty happened cool. this week and many then... many law three sixty readers are interested that's, in that well story. that's why Very I didn't much. want that to go by yeah. the board Very much and I would like to tack on one non Supreme Court thing just to sort of close the loop while we're doing that in our up top. Um, just last week, we had Nicole Nare on the show talking about the um, family separations at the border. Yeah. yeah. And a California federal judge late Monday night ordered the Trump administration to reunify parents with their kids um, within 30 days and to cease the practice. So um, that was an, um, uh, an ACLU suit. Yeah. And um, if the other immigration stuff's any indication, this will continue through the courts and be very contentious. But we at least got a button on what's happening right this second. The U.S. Supreme Court on Wednesday dealt a body blow to organized labor, ruling that public sector workers who aren't union members cannot be forced to help pay for collective bargaining. The 5-4 ruling, which overturned a 41-year-old precedent, is expected to weaken public unions by depriving them of a major source of revenue. It was also the final major ruling of the term, and a fitting one in a term that was dominated by a string of victories from the court's conservative wing. Here to discuss is senior employment reporter Vin Guerrieri. Welcome, Vin. What's happening, guys? Nice many, to have you many back on the show. Guests. Yeah, yeah. but b- b- before we hop in, I, a, a small correction. I have I have in past appearances mislabeled Vin as being the pride of Bay Ridge. Uh, he's actually the pride of Gravesend, according to a conversation we had five minutes ago. And this has this, been New York neighborhoods. Yeah, this bothers you a lot more than it bothers me. <laughs> <one. laughs> like the sake of like many things with yeah. Alex Lawson. <laughs> yeah. Well, Vin, do you think that the Mets should go get LeBron? Uh, might as well. <laughs> Nothing else is working. <laughs> All right, okay. let's get into it. So th- th- a lot of this case centered around this idea of agency fees, of, of fair share fees. Let's get our bearings, explain what those are, and you know, sort of set the stage for us. Okay, very simply, fair share fees are the fees that a union can collect mm-hmm. to cover its costs of collective bargaining. Mm-hmm. So... Workers who are members of the bargaining unit 
everyone has to be represented by the union fairly and equally. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that everyone should contribute something to the amount that the union spends in order to negotiate a contract. And to be clear, it's it's not like they're paying for the union's political advocacy or anything like that, right? It's just this idea the that way you they have function. to pay in for yeah. <clears throat> the actual way that it, it functions in terms of this collective bargaining. Correct. Right. So that's where we're getting into the precedent that the Supreme Court was dealing with. Yeah. Right? What's what, What's been like the orthodoxy on this issue in the past? Okay. So up until yesterday, yeah. the controlling case was a 1977 case called Abood. Mm-hmm. And in that case, the Supreme Court tried to basically strike a balance between the First Amendment rights of workers to not be members in a union. And this is only for public sector. I want to be yeah, careful right. to note that. Yeah. Right. So their First Amendment right to not be in the union, but also the employer's ability to manage its workforce. So what the Supreme Court did in Abood was basically say that you a worker can be assessed an agency fee or mm-hmm. a fair share fee mm-hmm. as long as it only covers collective bargaining and certain other related activities. Sort of the line the bill was drawing earlier. But not was... anything political. So the money can't go towards lobbying or unions uh, supporting particular political candidates or anything like that. Well, the Supreme Court went a different way this week. Can you walk us through exactly what they did? Basically, they went the opposite way. So it was pretty much a total loss for the unions on Mm -hmm. this one. What they essentially said was everything that a union does in the public sector qualifies as political activity. So if, for example, a union is negotiating wages, well, that means that a government is spending more money on paying out wages to public employees, which means it affects a budget, or it could affect policy in other areas that a state government might need to spend money on. Or it could be they collectively bargain over, for example, like education policy or any number of other different things. And the Supreme Court basically said that it all falls under the umbrella of political activity. Therefore, any money that a public employee gives to a union technically is covered by the First Amendment. And if that public employee doesn't want to pay the money, they can't be forced to because it's a First Amendment violation. It's another on one of these rulings where, with the with you know the First Amendment uh, being used in, in different ways than we, than we had seen it perhaps in the past. One person I spoke to uh, kind of mentioned it as equated it to a sports analogy. It's mm-hmm. almost like using the First Amendment on offense as opposed to on right. defense. Yeah, right. that's a good point. Um, there was as as we've already indicated, it was clean split down the partisan lines of the court, and that came with pretty strong dissent from Justice Elena Kagan. By the way, what's everybody's favorite cliche adjective for a partisan dissent? I like stinging dissent. Scathing is also good, although there was interesting blowback uh, to, I don't believe it was this ruling, but it was a different one. I think it was written by Sotomayor that was like, you know, the, the, the term, like, adjectives like hysterical and stuff like that. Yeah, it's oh, like right. thrown around on yeah. Twitter. That, Don't like, like that, it's a female guys. judge. Don't yeah, like it. Yeah. Um, fiery. Uh, right, right, anyway, right. okay. So Kagan, I'm fine yeah. with fiery. Yeah, that's okay. Fine. Forceful, simple, and strong. Yeah, there strong, you go. Strongly yeah. worded. That's, that's what we're right. on about. That's, they, they just get trotted out in case like okay. this. Anyway, so Kagan. So we're in the part yeah. where I really want to talk about yes. it because this Kagan dissent really was forceful. Forceful. That's definitely true. Give us some highlights. Okay. I mean, I can run through a list. So she, my favorite one was that she called the majority black robed rulers who are essentially picking winners and losers and overturning, in this case, overturning a case that they just didn't like. Right. Because right. they didn't like it. Um, 
there were there were a ton. She criticized the majority for going on what she called was a six year crusade yeah. to wow. overturn this particular precedent. She also accused the majority of quote weaponizing the First Amendment in a way that unleashes judges now and in the future to intervene in economic and regulatory policy. Unquote. She's not quote. mincing any words not, there. Black robed rulers right. weaponizing the First Amendment. She really went full force in this. She line. had a very forward looking approach to it. It wasn't just this particular precedent that they overlooked, but she was also warning about the future use of the First Amendment to overturn precedent in any number of different areas. Could be employment, could be healthcare, right. could be could be pretty much anywhere where speech is arguably involved. It seems like a thing we've said a lot during this conversation is overturning precedent. Is the idea of not of you know of going a different way than the court did, and that seemed like a flashpoint in what Kagan was saying, and then the majority responded to her dissent a little bit in the in the opinion. You know, let's let's talk a little bit about what this majority ruling did when it comes to like, you know respecting or not respecting the idea of stare decisis, of, of, of uh, showing respect for, for the court's own previous precedent. This was a major point of contention between the majority. Justice Alito wrote the lead opinion, mm-hmm. and he and Justice Kagan went back and forth in their two opinions over this very issue. Justice Kagan basically said that the standard had been working fine. There was no issue with it, and it had become... 40 years, a long time. It had become so ingrained yeah. in labor that yeah, like it was... In the states and how good it was everywhere. Were, yeah, right, right. It was everywhere. Between different states, there's almost two dozen states that allow agency fees. Yeah. And her point was all of these different states have multiple laws that cover this particular topic that, who knows, thousands of different contracts yeah. have provisions in them for agency fees. All of those, according to Justice Kagan, are going to get wiped off the boards and everyone's going to have to go back to the drawing board and figure everything out from scratch. Well, what did Alito say in that lead opinion about why this was all fine? Right, because you need need special circumstances, right? Isn't that the the term they throw around? Yeah, so as far as the actual reasons, Alito downplayed it quite a bit. He said, well, these are only temporary contracts anyway. They're going to run out shortly, so no big deal there. (laughs) He also made a point to say that people should have been on notice already that the Supreme Court was wishy-washy on this particular precedent, Mm -hmm. which was something that Kagan didn't care for very much. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Where were they wishy-washy before if people hadn't followed along? Because hadn't there been some sort of like dicta in an earlier ruling that had mentioned it? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this goes back to uh, Kagan's comment about there being a six-year crusade. Okay. Right. So this started in, I believe it was 2014, maybe a little bit before. Mm -hmm. There have been a line of cases where the Supreme Court majorities have brought up a boot in different contexts just to criticize it to say that they didn't believe it was reasonable or that it wasn't decided correctly we, we talk about that a lot like the little like they'll, they'll like throw up flags for anybody who might want to challenge something sure. like we're we're, we're kind of little little teasers yeah. that they put in like our ears are open if you want to make an argument <laughs> exactly yeah. okay. so he put alito in some previous opinions had included some of these little lines and sentences criticizing the precedent and now he cited some of those <laughs> that he had previously written. It's like, like saying people I've are talking. People the... are talking. <laughs> it may, in fact, be me, but people are talking. You about hear this. about a boot yeah. more and more yeah. and how much <laughs> everybody hates it. 
which Kagan's point in response to that was, well, you can't really criticize uh, employers or unions for not paying attention to those little criticisms well, because all they were Supreme doing, court opinions, all yeah. they were doing was following the law. Right. Food was good law. Sure. They were following it. End of story. So they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be held to account for not paying attention to it previously. Let's pull back from the ruling and get into what this is going to mean going forward. I mean, we, you know, the, some of the coverage is hyperbolic, but I, I, you know, my sense is that that a lot of that hyperbole is justified to a certain extent. That you know that that, that, that this is a big problem for for organized labor, um, uh, for the public sector. Right, it's right, huge. Right. Yeah. So there's some things that are predictable. There are some things that are not as predictable. Mm-hmm. It's pretty fair to say that there's going to be a major decrease in union membership. I think everyone pretty much expects that. The only question really is how much. Right. So there's no incentive really whatsoever for a public sector employee now to remain in the union and keep paying dues. The only thing that's going to keep them around is really loyalty to their union. Yeah, right. And if they have an inkling or a sense that the union is benefiting them, they might continue making But it's like payments. altruism. Like you're, 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 you're right. essentially doing that against your own financial interests. Right. And that's where the problem comes in. If there are a lot of people that leave, those those are called free riders mm-hmm. because they're essentially riding on the union for free. They're getting the benefits of being in it without Without actually paying for it. it. Mm -hmm. If there are a lot of people that become free riders, I think Kagan even actually had a line in that in her dissent where she said that the people remaining who still pay union dues are going to feel like suckers, which is her word, not mine, which is kind of true if you think about it. And then it'll just speed up that process that we're talking about. If if I'm sitting next to you and I pay union dues and you don't, but we're getting the same benefits out of it, you can see how someone would feel not happy about being put in that position. Right. So that may lead more people to leave the union. And the infrastructure begins to crumble. and Less yeah. money. Union has less funds coming in, which means it can't spend as much on everything from political activity to the, the number of arbitrations or grievances that it pursues and just becomes a vicious cycle for the union that's going to be hard to break. the Supreme Court upheld the third version of President Trump's immigration travel ban. It was a hotly contested case that pit the big ideas of national security against religious freedom. With us today to break down the ruling is Hawaii Lieutenant Governor Doug Chin, who brought the state's lawsuit against the first version of the ban last year while he was Attorney General. Thanks for joining us, Doug. Thank you for having me on the show. Doug, let's let's start at the beginning here. Um, we, you know, the the first travel ban was enacted in in January 2017, uh, targeting nationals of several Muslim majority countries. When you were Attorney General of the state of Hawaii at that at that time, you acted quickly to to challenge that that initial ban. Could you walk us through sort of the thought process of you know how how you decided to get involved and and you know what the theory was, what the what the angle was? Walk us through your thought process. When the executive order first came out at the end of January of 2017, the reaction here in Hawaii was just the same as it was around all the, the rest of the mainland. Uh, hundreds of people came down to the Honolulu International Airport 
protesting, uh, which was a little unusual for a, a place that is a little more chill and laid back, like, right. uh, like the state of Hawaii. Right. Uh, but I think it really resonated with um, the the people here because Hawaii is so multicultural and diverse and welcoming of people regardless of their religion or their ethnicity or their identity. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also the 75th anniversary of the Korematsu versus United States decision, and there were some speakers in town, including the daughter of Fred Korematsu, right. Karen Korematsu. And, and during that time, she actually shared about how um, one of the things that bothered her parents the most when they were placed into internment camps um, on the basis of national security was not that the executive order came out because they were patriotic and, and wanted to comply with whatever the president was telling them to do. Uh, but what bothered them the most was that as they were walking into the internment camps, then the, the father remembered that um, the uh, friends and neighbors were all standing on the street watching them and nobody was saying anything. Wow. And uh, it, it really uh, hit me that, I mean, that when, when I heard those uh, that statement being made that yeah. look we, we've really got to we've got to say something you know we, we've got to stand up to this uh, this is just flat wrong it it, it is um, automatically uh, characterizing people who are Muslim or from the Middle East as if they are terrorists and uh, and frankly even this third version um, that has been upheld by the Supreme Court uh, it still does that in my opinion it, it still uh, blocks 140 million people right now right. from coming into the United States because they are presumed to be a terrorist, regardless of whether they are a baby or a grandmother or uh, or somebody who has a serious medical condition. And Hawaii certainly did lead the charge standing up against this ban. But now we're at this week where the justices adopted the administration's position, saying it was a neutral ban, it advances national security. Your state had argued that Trump's tweets and campaign speeches in particular show that the ban really was just motivated by anti-Muslim animus. So why do you think they didn't buy into those arguments? What what went wrong for the state of Hawaii in this case? Well, I don't think it was so much that something went wrong as it was that the five justices that comprised the conservative majority of the U.S. Supreme Court uh, really gave President Trump a pass. Uh, I, I mean, I think, uh, you know, what, what had occurred in all the courts below uh, was a pretty clear uh, understanding from the judges that uh, President Trump's words mattered, whether it was on the campaign trail or, mm-hmm. or goodness, even after he became the president. I mean, he, he really did not let up at all in terms of his um, anti-Muslim comments. So I, I remember one thing that the Hawaii federal court judge did, the, the uh, initial district court judge that, that blocked the, the travel ban uh, when it first came out, in, uh, or the, excuse me, the second version of the travel ban when it came out, was uh, he wrote these words. He said that uh, the, the court is not going to uh, sit silently, crawl into a corner, close the shutters, and pretend that it is not seen what it is seen. Right. And um, and and really, I, I don't think the uh, four liberal justices on the Supreme Court were going to uh, pretend that they hadn't seen this. In yeah. fact, that's literally what um, Justice Sotomayor wrote in her uh, in her dissent. So, um, so I, I think the you know instead I, I think the uh, court uh, the majority uh, of the court gave uh, President Trump uh, a huge pass. I think they really uh, gave him a, a lot of discretion uh, to be able to um, uh, to be able to make decisions that he wanted to about uh, people who enter the United States based upon national security. So I think some of what um, t- 
turned this case a bit is that it wasn't that original travel ban 1.0 that people were protesting at airports. And it had changed quite a bit by the time it made it to the Supreme Court. Do you view that as a big shift here, too, that maybe the justices would have viewed this differently if the administration hadn't had all these months to roll out a different ban than the original one? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was the rationale of the majority of the court was that uh, they almost implied that that the first version was something that they they would have struck down, uh, but by the time we got to the third ban, that there there had been a lot of so-called work that was put into it, and and uh, a lot of layers of approvals that wasn't simply um, just the president's own exclusive biases, but but involved other agency officials. And we certainly argued against that. I mean, I, I think that um, the the third version, while more neutral, or I guess I could say less worse than the yeah. the yeah. other the other travel bans, uh, was uh, was still uh, something that um, that still, to our minds, just violated the Constitution. And, and to, you know, I think one of the biggest things that we pointed out was that uh, was that President Trump never actually. Um, took his statements back. Right. Uh, the Department of Justice actually tried to argue that falsely, um, and then had to walk it back later on in a, um, a letter to the Supreme Court to say, "Well, actually, we were wrong. You know, President Trump has never taken back his words. Yeah. He's a, he's always uh, said what he said uh, about Muslims." And, um, and and I find that to be a, a very uh, that's troubling. But yeah. uh, but that's how they they ruled. Now you mentioned that you you felt like the the majority here gave the administration a pass um is it is it a blank check pass i mean is it are there limits here to to what the what the court said i mean it does this give the the executive branch un, unlimited power to do things like this sort of walk us to where this this you know this leaves us in terms of what the what what this administration and future administrations can do in situations like this sure well let me be clear about something is that to the department of justice uh, they consider President Trump's uh, actions to be unreviewable when it comes to immigration. And the reason why I, I say that, and I'm not just you know, shaking my fist blindly about something like that, is because that was the exact question that was asked by the Ninth Circuit judges, three panel in Seattle back in December, was, was they said, are you saying that if President Trump decided to block all people from coming into the right. country, just woke up some morning and said nobody is coming in right now for national security reasons, that that would be an unreviewable decision? And the answer from the Department of Justice was yes. So I, I think we should at least realize that uh, as far as the administration is concerned, um, that's their position. I, I don't think that's actually the case from the, the Supreme Court itself. I think there was some, some nuanced uh, statements that were made, uh, particularly by Justice Kennedy, where he wrote that um, an anxious world is is looking very carefully at these uh, um, at the actions that the United States is making to mm-hmm. to uh, to make sure that we are still continuing to live up to the standards that the world has always believed that we had. Uh, even Chief Justice Roberts, uh, I think, very deferentially, but but still, um, but still, he did make the statement that. Uh, you know, there there have been presidents that have had um, his his words were uneven policies, um, and uh, and yet this from a legal perspective, Chief Justice Roberts wasn't going to uh, wasn't going to have a problem with that. But I, I want to say this: um, uh, shortly after the decision came out, then uh, President Trump, besides crowing about the fact that that he had just won, then went on camera from the White House to to basically talk about um, the 
you know, the, the border security uh, actions that were being taken, that, that were happening on the, the southern border of the U.S. And, and his, his rhetoric was basically saying this. It was saying um, open borders means more criminals and more firearms coming into the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, closed borders means there will be less crime, less firearms coming in. Those were literally his words. Right. And to me, what bothered me so much about that rhetoric is, is the, the message from that kind of statement is that people from Mexico and Central America and South America are criminals and people who bring in guns into our country, um, which is just the same as saying people from the Middle East or people who are Muslim are terrorists. And, and that is the message that I think is so dangerous to uh, our, our gener- the generation that we're in and mm-hmm. to the, the community. I, I mean, I, I really think that we are in a fight for the nation's conscience and, and soul, that, that when you have the, the leader of the free world making statements like that, uh, it, it is so important to, to that, that for all of us who think otherwise to, to make sure that we are disagreeing with that so that our children and, and the people who are uh, listening to all this know that that is not our value. That's, that's not the American value. Doug, you paint a really clear picture for us about the ongoing stakes of this, that Trump is continuing with very strong rhetoric when it comes to immigration. Um, and even though the justices maybe didn't give him a complete pass, they gave him a lot of latitude here. So what can you tell us to expect moving forward? What do you see as the future for immigration policies, be it you know a complete bans like this or other immigration things that hinge on national security powers? Sure. Well, I... I... First of all, I think the ban is in place. And so as we're sitting here right now, uh, 140 million people, as I said, are not able to come into the country. And, and that is unprecedented. Um, that, that has never uh, occurred before. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there is a waiver and exemption process that's within the, the current version uh, of the order. But um, what uh, Justice Kagan and Justice Breyer actually pointed out is that the Department of Justice in practice has been uh, only allowing people in at a, at a very minuscule level that, that there are so many stories of um, from the different people who submitted amicus briefs to the court uh, where they described people who had very serious medical conditions and, and people who would uh, just fell within the entire four corners of, of what would grant them a waiver to come into the country and yet um, immigration officials had not allowed them to come in. So I could actually see, frankly, I could see a small amount of litigation coming from that. I, I don't know how successful that will be. Right. Um, but I, I think what, what we already see is that the administration has moved on uh, into a, a much bigger discussion about border security, about building a wall, and, and, and really about uh, separating families. And, 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 I, and I think that... Um, the real answer is this, is that if the, if the court it will not or cannot check the president, then the, the next step is the only other branch that, that can be able to check the president is Congress. And, and, and essentially, I've got to say this, is that that was the invitation that came from Chief Justice Roberts, almost the way he punted, was, right. was say, look, you know, this, this is just the way we're interpreting the law. We're saying that, you know, that this, this, uh, um, this uh, um, deference that we're giving to the president to bar entry into the United States is something that Congress wrote, so Congress can always change it. 
so I think that's something for the public to realize is that there's there's a way that they can be able to uh, restaff Congress either in 2018 or in 2020 to be able to bring about change if the courts won't. Doug, thanks so much for being on the show. Um, all eyes will now turn to Congress for this issue. Thank you. show guys i want to end with something offbeat and i've just got a quick hit for you today good so sometimes you hear about jobs that have like a mandatory retirement age yeah airline pilots they usually make them leave at like 65 or 70 inuits (laughs) (laughs) well well, now we have a law firm that's gotten in on this mandatory retirement age thing right right right. also using an ice flow yeah right (laughs) inuits is a job it's very funny to me right um Houston-based Sussman Godfrey adopted a mandatory retirement age for lawyers at the firm. Okay. The age is 100. <laughs> Very cool. So I just want to point out that just... I love if, it. You were, if you were born before the Harding administration, yeah, you are right. no longer welcome here. So here's what I want to point if out. If you survived the Spanish flu as an infant, <laughs> you are no longer welcome here. Uh, Yoda, you're out of luck. You're 900 years <laughs> yeah. old. You have to go. Um, Justice Kennedy really went too early is what I'm learning from uh, this. Oh, you stole my joke. He would have had 19 years to go. I know. What? Well, I mean, he didn't go to... He, he can go work at Sussman now. He can. He's That's got what I'm 19 saying. good years. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. He's going to be an emeritus partner at, yeah. at Sussman Godfrey. We figured good. out his next job. <laughs> so just so you guys know... For 19 more why, years. Yeah, right. I, I mean, I think this is really funny, the concept of 100, but why the firm did this, and I want to give a little hat tip to the Texas lawyer that reported on this, and they got yeah. some pretty funny quotes from the firm. Neil Main, who's the managing partner, explained the move by saying, quote, the message is we love each other and love practicing law together and plan on doing it forever. That, so, oh, that's literally it. I thought there was like a, I thought there was like a lawyerly like, but yeah, wait, nope, no, nope. for uh, insurance purposes, we need forever. to make sure that we have no centenarians working no, here. Basically, what happened is that a now bunch we of, now to the ice flow. <laughs> a bunch of other firms have mandatory retirement ages, and this firm wanted to make it really clear that no one's going to be forced out. They're they're not going to make anybody right. leave. And he did sort of quip and say like, people are allowed to leave sooner than hundred. I, I would I would love. <laughs> Thank if this God was, we got if that. This was one day up. tested. This yeah. is one day litigated. Like. Well, Larry, I, you know, we never thought it would come into play, but you know, life expectancy's been getting later, and well, you're a hundred, and we have to fire you. I'm sorry. <laughs> would be cool, and if, if that person was like still like an ace, like Supreme Court litigator, like right. best in the business, a rainmaker. Yeah, yeah there you right. go. Right. Well, anyway, and I just I want to give you one parting quote from founding partner Steve Sussman. He's 77, and his quote was. All things must pass, and I'm facing with equanimity this 23-year transition period before my retirement. <laughs> oh, oh that's a that's a nice. I mean, I've I think we're all kind of grappling with the march of time, and I think that that's a good way to end. It is. Thanks for being with me today, Alex. Thank you, and Bill. See you next week, guys. We'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests, Doug Chen and Vin Guerreri, and contributing reporter this week, Nicole Norea. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about anything we've talked about today, and boy, did we talk about a lot, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. And if you like the show, go to Stitcher and iTunes and leave us a review. It helps other people find us. Thanks, and join us again next week.